0: We'll hear an argument this morning in case seventeen ninety five seventy two, Flowers versus Mississippi. Ms. Johnson.
1: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, the only plausible interpretation of all of the evidence viewed cumulatively is that Doug Evans began jury selection in Flowers Six with an unconstitutional end in mind to seat as few African American jurors as he could. The numbers alone are striking. In the first four trials, Mr. Evans exercised 36 peremptory challenges, all of them against African-American jurors. In the sixth trial, he exercised five out of six of his challenges against African-American jurors. If we look at the numbers of his regarding uh, his questioning, they are likewise stark. He asked of the struck African-American jurors an average of 29 questions. He asked of the seated white jurors an average of 1.1 questions. But these numbers do not stand alone. Mr. Evans was twice found to have discriminated on the basis of race in the exercise of his peremptory challenges against African-American dependents. In trials of the same case against the same defendant, there is no one who has a record of discrimination adjudicated discrimination like that of Mr. Evans.
2: The history of the case prior to this trial is very troubling, and you've summarized that, uh, and it, it is it is cause for concern and is certainly relevant to the decision that ultimately has to be made in the case, but. If we were — I'm not suggesting that this is the way it should be analyzed. This is not the way it should be analyzed. But if we were to disregard everything that happened before this trial and we looked at the strikes of the black prospective jurors as we would in any other Batson case, do you think you'd have much chance of winning?
1: The evidence still is clear and convincing that Mr. Evans acted with discriminatory motivation in this case even if we set aside his history and his the, the reasons that he was unwilling to tell the truth in previous I mean, if cases. we
2: look at at the jurors in question one by one there are aspects that i think would cause any prosecutor anywhere to want to get that jury that juror off the jury there's a juror who said that uh she she couldn't view the evidence objectively she couldn't make a decision based just on the evidence. There's one who said that she, because of her acquaintance with members of the Flowers family, she would lean toward the defendant. Another one who admitted that she made a false statement on her juror questionnaire because she'd say anything to get off the jury. Do you think those are those are bats and claims that would likely succeed if this troubling history had not preceded this case?
1: This Court has demanded a sensitive inquiry into all of the circumstances that uh, prove racial discrimination. And again, even setting aside his history, There are many circumstances here that suggest racial motivation. First, as I already said, there is an extraordinary record of disparate questioning. And the disparate questioning is not limited to those numbers, but to the tone of his questioning. I believe that one of the the responses that you quoted came from an extremely aggressive pursuit of an African-American juror who initially said she would not be troubled and ultimately said it's possible Now, of course, a prosecutor could take that approach with every juror. If he took that aggressive approach with every juror, then there would be nothing to complain about. But he did not take that approach with white jurors. And then there is his out-of-court investigation of three African-American jurors.
2: And then there are — Well, what's wrong with that? Again, putting aside uh, the reasons to be suspicious, if a juror says — I don't, I didn't work, I don't work closely with the defendant's sister. I don't work close to the defendant's sister. And the prosecutor has reason to suspect that's not true. Is there something wrong with the prosecutor going to the human relations person at that place of employment and bringing that person in to testify they actually work nine to ten inches apart? Is there something wrong with that?
1: There's nothing wrong with that if there was reason to disbelieve this juror. The juror volunteered that she knew her, that she worked in that place. There, Mr. Evans cited no reason that he should not believe her. But also what happens after that is somewhat suspicious, which is he brings someone in to say, uh, well, they worked very close together, and that someone says, and I could produce the evidence. And is, when asked to produce the evidence of that, the records that produce that, he doesn't come back with that evidence. So I think um, we could certainly — a prosecutor could, and, and a rich prosecutor might, investigate all. By the way, did he have
3: that witness ready that same day? No, or he brought the witness back the next day. The next
2: day. Earlier. What did, is your strongest uh, strike?
3: I,
1: I think the most — the clearest case is that of Carolyn Wright. Uh, Carolyn Wright. Uh, about Carolyn Wright, he made three false statements. The first statement he made was that her wages were garnished. That well, actually,
2: not... uh, we have found in the record with a state exhibit on it, a judgment that shows that her wages were garnished.
1: No, the wages, there's a mark that shows that there was such a request but both the trial court and the Mississippi Supreme Court looked at that record and found that her wages had not been garnished. Well, we can and look at
2: that. We can look at the judgment. But the fact remains that she was. This was one of the victims. Was the proprietor of a, of a family-owned store, right? That's a family-owned store. Correct. And the store, the store sued her.
1: Well, the store sued her. The victim herself had not sued her. Oh, but
2: the store did. law
1: later that sued her.
2: But and normally, wouldn't that, you know, again, put aside the history. But we can't, in the end, we can't do it. But if you did, don't you think a prosecutor or any attorney would be very wary of having a uh, a, a juror who had been sued by one of the parties?
1: I think that if this prosecutor had pursued bias — in, with respect to white jurors as well as African-American jurors and then made that strike, then that would be a strike that would be a permissible strike. But, in fact, um, he didn't do that. So, first of all, I do want to notice that this was one of four uh, victims. It does seem rather unlike that a person in a quadruple homicide case would be biased by a subsequent suit of one of the relatives. But even if we thought that that were true, one would have imagined that the prosecutor would have inquired about bias with respect to the other victims.
4: Wasn't One, there a question asked of the entire uh, array of uh, whether they had any debts to the uh, to the store?:
1: Yes, but there was no question asked about uh, suits or disputes. With, other, of, with the other three victims, nor was there an inquiry into bias that I think any rational prosecutor would have made, if concerned truly about bias, which was uh, lawsuits, prosecutions of the jurors and their close relatives by his office. The prosecutor made no inquiry about that. If you were worried about bias, you would be worried
3: about that. Did if he you, even ask Ms. Wright? how she felt about that suit and whether it would affect her in this case
1: In fact she was asked about the suit and when she was asked about that suit what she said is that she had paid the debt and that she had no ill will toward the tardies. And indeed, if we follow up on this reason, I think this reason is especially suspicious because he cited the same reason with respect to Edith Burnside. So first of all, he cited with respect to Edith Burnside, he repeated the false statement that her wages had been garnished despite the fact of having been called by the trial court on it the first time. And then he said that he was
3: striking her in part on that basis.
1: But Ms. Burnside can- Can you
3: go back and and just slow down a second? You said to Justice Alito that that record in, that state (laughs) record that says something about garnishment, that the state courts found that that was not adequate. Could you explain why not? Well that judgment in the record, what is it? Or the that, judgment that, it's not a form it's a form in the record, but what does it mean? The form in the
1: record reflects a suit and there's a little check by garnishment, but if you look at the order at the end, mm-hmm. there is no garnishment order. The trial court looked at that and the Mississippi Supreme Court looked at that, and I think they are the experts about what their documents mean, and they said there was no garnishment. What if
5: what if it turned out there were a garnishment? How would that affect your argument, if at all? Well
1: well then that would mean that he only made Made two false statements about juror right uh, the two false statements were that she knew uh, uh, flowers sister Cora and that she knew flowers sister Sharida. Uh, so then there would be two but if I could go back for a moment to miss Burnside when he repeated this story, I think the the pretext of this reason is apparent when we look at Miss Burnside miss Burnside worked. For Miss Tardy. Miss Burnside worked for Miss Tardy, caring for her mother. Miss Burnside was helped during her divorce by Miss Tardy. So whatever she might have felt negative about the son in law, the feeling she would have had about the victim herself could only have been positive. And yet he cited this same reason. When we look at that, what we see didn't
2: juror Burnside also say repeatedly she didn't want to judge anybody.
1: No, she did not. Oh, Judge Burnside said that she did not want to judge anyone. She did say that, but I think you think that's
2: not a legitimate reason for for striking a juror who's going to have to judge whether someone who's accused of a serious crime is guilty or not.
1: That is a legitimate reason for striking a judge. I'm sorry for striking a juror. (laughs) But the problem the problem isn't whether the reason is a legitimate reason. But whether the reason was pretext, and when we look at what he did with respect to citing the relationship uh, having been sued by the Tardis, it looks like everything he's saying is pretext. And if I could also go back to the rest uh, of your question about uh, juror right, um, so there were three misrepresentations with respect to juror right. Uh, there was also they also cited the number of defence witnesses. Uh, that she knew, but the prosecutor, Doug Evans, did not question uh, prospective white jurors Waller, Lester, Blaylock, and Fields about their relationships with a witness, with, white, uh, with defense witnesses, nor did he strike them when he had an opportunity to do so.
2: But isn't it true she also worked with the defendant's father?
1: She worked in the same location as the defendant's father. She worked in the
2: same store. She right?
1: worked in the same the store. The world's
2: smallest Walmart.
1: That's what the what, that's what, that's what the said. trial court described it as. But but it is important to notice that when she was asked, um, does he still work there, she didn't even know if he still worked there. So there's yeah, But really... did she still work there? She did.
2: I thought she had left.
1: Uh, no, that's another juror with respect to — I believe with respect to Cora Flowers. Um, but what I wanted to — she didn't know if he still
3: worked there. But Compare it, her with Pamela — Justine, um, though that comparison is the one that I'm most interested in.
1: I I was about to do that. And so I think that it's true that working with someone under some circumstances might produce bias. It is interesting that the only thing she said that might suggest the closest of the relationship is uh, that she didn't know whether he still worked. And the pro- and Evans did not ask about the closeness of the relationship. Nor did he worry about the closeness of the relationship with Juror Chastine and four, or I think it's maybe even five of Flower's family members. Uh, Juror Chastine worked, uh, as a teller in a bank where all five of them came. Um, and she- She waited. said
3: that she knew the father as well.
1: Yes, yeah, she knew the father and the mother and two sisters and a brother. And uh Doug but Evans was not it interested in that, the that
4: relationship of a bank teller to someone who comes to make a deposit different from someone who is a coworker and it would encounter someone in the work set, setting on a daily basis
1: it is a different relationship, or it could be a very different relationship. We can't actually even know the closeness of either relationship unless there was inquiry. But Doug Evans did not make that kind of inquiry. Indeed, what he said to juror Chastine is, and that was a purely professional relationship, he didn't ask whether she had a close relationship, whether she was worried. He instead presumed, reassured everyone that all she the, did not. the
0: All the, the, the questions that we've been uh addressing here are the same sort of questions you would get in a typical Batson case, looking at the circumstances of the uh, potential jurors that were struck in this case. But I mean of course, as as my colleagues have recognized, the case is unusual because you have the extensive history, and I think that's probably why uh, the case is here for uh, for review. And I'm interested, because obviously the rule we adopt will apply in other cases, how far um, uh, your argument that we need to look at the past history is is pertinent. If if the uh, prosecutor had uh, had one uh, Batson violation in his thirty year career twenty years ago, is that something that should be brought out and pertinent in the assessment of the current Batson challenges?
1: Mr. Justice, may I say one thing about Carolyn Wright that I don't want to forget? Sure. Uh, the other thing that's noteworthy about her is that she put on her death penalty questionnaire that she was strongly in favor of the death penalty. So when we look at her as a whole, a, a, a prosecutor who was looking in a colorblind way would have been attracted to her. Now for but my now, question. now for your question. And I apologize, but I was worried I would not uh, get back to that. So um, I think this is an extraordinary case. Uh, I have combed uh, the cases, and I cannot find any case. No, no. I know
0: it's you're you're fighting but, the hypothetical. My question is: 30 years bats in violation 20 years ago. Is that pertinent to the consideration in the current
1: case? I'm sorry, I didn't understand the question. Then um, yes, it is pertinent, but it's weakly probative. So I think when we conduct a consensitive inquiry, we look. Uh, As we would in a criminal case, we look at how recent a fabrication has been whether it's on a relatively similar matter, whether the person has the same motive. So a case that occurred 30 years ago would be very different in terms of motive. It also would be quite different in terms of the established law of this Court. So oh. someone who violates Batson before it's announced or someone who violates Batson immediately thereafter, uh, that's less probative than someone who has done so repeatedly. So, so
0: what, is, what is the rule you would have us adopt as a general rule? not just in a particular case as extreme as this one?
1: The general rule is a rule that you have already adopted, which is that in Stage 3, every factor that bears upon credibility is relevant. So that's the general rule. And I suppose if we say that in another way, the Mississippi Supreme Court asked only the question of, is there a juror left — is there a reason for this juror left standing that is not contradicted by the record and exactly matched by a white juror? And that's not the right rule. The right rule is a sensitive inquiry.
5: Even before — your turn. No, no, you go first. All right. Justice Gorsuch. So I want to pursue the Chief Justice's question just a little bit further um, so I can understand what you'd have us do in the next case. Uh, let's just suppose this case, trial six, was perfect and the strikes were uh, without taint otherwise. But we have this history with this prosecutor. Would uh, that be a problem still, or would there be no Batson violation in those circumstances?
1: If there weren't eight misrepresentations of fact, right. disparate questioning, right, 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 all no, that stuff. Right, no, you're fighting the hypothetical the again.
5: Yeah, yeah. The hypothetical is, let's suppose that in this case, there were strikes, but they were explained by uh, non-discriminatory reasons. And there yet, were we no have, other... yet we have this prosecutor with this history. What then? How should the court assess a case like that?
1: If there are no other indicia of discrimination, then the defendant has not met his burden of proof by proving prior discrimination.
5: Okay, so we need discrimination in this trial in order to have a Batson violation. Yes. Okay, all right. That's helpful. Thank you. Uh,
6: My question was about the history. I thought that Swain had said that the history was relevant. In fact, Swain said history was the only way you could prove a violation. What Batson did was to say, no, you can look even at the individual case. But Batson, as I read it, did not say you no longer take account of the history. Uh, your reading of Swain and how Swain and Batson interact?
1: I think that's entirely correct, Your Honor. Uh, even in Swain, uh, history was relevant. Um, and uh, to look more broadly, in Arlington Heights, this Court said that history is relevant. So uh, — and in Millerell said that history was relevant. So there isn't a new rule about history being relevant. The Mississippi Supreme Court ignored what this Court has already said about history being relevant. And the the broader point that
4: everything — The Court said it took account of the history. So what are we to make of that? Well, if there were — if the Court
1: had taken account of its of the history, it couldn't have come to this conclusion. And I think there's many reasons in the opinion to believe that they did not. They said, considering the history — it doesn't alter our opinion. And they pasted in their prior opinion that was history blind. They also said his, re- his history does not undermine his stated reasons. That's wrong. It undermines those reasons. It may or may not be sufficient. But a history of will, of, of a desire for, a, an all-white juror, a history of willingness to violate the Constitution, and a history of willingness to make false statements to a trial court, those things in the past, with respect to at least three other jurors, that does undermine it. And then I think when we look at what they actually did, there is no point in which they say, yes, we are more skeptical uh, of the reasons that he stated because he was dishonest before. Or, yes, when I look at at the false statements he made here, the eight false statements he made here, those match with false statements that he made before. They never did that. So I think they did not consider his history, nor did they consider anything else that would be consistent with this Court's insistence that we look at the totality of the circumstances and conduct a sensitive inquiry. Ms. Johnson,
4: strongest case is a juror, potential juror right. One of your complaints is that there were many more questions asked of African-American potential jurors, but that wasn't so in Wright's case. She was asked, I think, only three questions. Is that correct? Yes.
1: But I think, you know, it is actually — the relevance of the disparate questioning is not merely to ask how many questions this juror was asked. So it might indeed be, as the Mississippi Supreme Court said, that with respect to some African-American jurors, it was legitimate to ask them more questions because more of them knew Flowers' family. But the, the point still remains, and, and this is the point that this Court made in miller disparate questioning of even another juror is relevant. It does suggest that the prosecutor is looking for reasons to strike an African-American juror as opposed to being interested in bias or death penalty attitudes or anything else.
7: M- Ms. Johnson, some time ago, Justice Alito asked you about the prosecutor's investigation of certain potential jurors. Um, and d- 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 how many jurors did the prosecutor separately investigate? And Three. were, and all African American?
1: All of them were African American, and when defense counsel said, He's investigating African-American jurors. There's no evidence that he investigated anyone else. He said nothing. So he had an opportunity to say, oh, I've investigated everyone, and he did not say that.
7: And can I ask you about the disparate questioning? Because you referred to something which struck me when, as I read through all of this. Uh, this is uh, unlike some Batson cases you see. It's a very small town uh, where everybody knows everybody, apparently, or many people know many people, and it's a, um, a largely segregated town where um, uh, you might think that African-Americans knew more African-Americans than they would uh, whites or vice versa. So um, does that account for some of the differential questioning? In other words, um, just sort of looking at the environment and saying, I have to push more on whether X knew Y, because given the circumstances of the town, X might very well have known Y.
1: The Mississippi Supreme Court said that it accounted for some of the differential questioning, and I think that's correct. There are more African-American jurors who report uh, relationships with defense witnesses or the defense family members. But there are five, uh, Af- five white jurors who report such relationships
4: and whom the prosecutor did not ask questions about those relationships. So- When you said such relationships, were they relationships because of uh, working at the same place or living in the same neighborhood in the case of the white jurors?
1: They were, none of the relationships were working at the same place. But when, when he was asked, when, when they were asked in group voir dire about uh, whom they knew, uh, white jurors and responded that they knew uh, defense witnesses. And they were not questioned about those witnesses. So we can't really know what the nature of those relationships are if we
2: don't ask questions. Do you, uh, do you have those names, or is, is that in your brief something? It is in the brief, remember. but it
1: is Waller, Lester, Blaylock, and Fields, as well as team.
3: I found it strange, but maybe you can, um, or unusual, I should say, not strange, unusual, that there were some white jurors who had people accused of crimes in jail, relatives accused of crimes in jails. Were there any questions about how that affected those white jurors?
1: No, there were no questions about that at all, of three of them, and I think a very brief question about For two of them, and I think that goes to the question of, was he really investigating bias when he asked this question about uh, being sued by Tardy Furniture? If you're really investigating bias, you would be concerned about bias against your office, and he was not interested in that. Uh, with the court's permission, uh, I will reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal.
0: Thank you, counsel.
8: Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. The history in this case is troubling. But the history is confined to this case, and as Mr. Chief Justice pointed out, it is unusual. There are – this is the sixth trial in this small town, a small town of approximately 5,000 individuals. The questioning of whether the makeup or the limited number of individuals in the town was one of the reasons for follow-up questions is accurate. At the outset, let me say that the Mississippi Supreme Court's decision in this case was commensurate with Batson and its progeny. And I would return to Justice Gorsuch's question of if we disengage this troubling history, and I agree I'm not suggesting that, as Justice Alito said. However, if we take that out of the case,
2: we, we don't have any taints. Could I just we ask you a question the, of uh, Mississippi law? Could the Attorney General have said, you know, enough already? Uh, we're going to send one of our own people to try this case, preferably in a different county where so many people don't know so many other people. Could, could he have done that? Statutorily, the Attorney General's office is allowed to assist, is allowed
8: to take over, but only upon request by that district attorney. So that was not an option in this case. We were not so requested.
6: You, you said if, if we take the history out of the case, we can't take the history out
8: of the case. Oh, no, Justice Kavanaugh, no, I'm not saying that. That's what I was saying exactly. Forty-two,
6: forty-two potential African Americans and forty-one are stricken, right? Yes, Your Honor, that is correct. We have to – that's relevant, correct? That is relevant, yes,
8: Your Honor. The, as this court has held in millerial uh, history is part of the consideration.
7: So you agree that it's not only the adjudicated bats and violations that are relevant, but also the number of strikes such as Justice Kavanaugh listed?
8: I do with qualification. There, the strikes were unique. The strikes in this case are supported in the record. Uh, each of the jurors that were struck either worked with a relative, were related or knew uh, intimately family members, the defendant or his family members, up to and including uh, one juror who lied on her questionnaire and then admitted to lying on the stand.
4: You have a very strange position on uh, potential jurors who lied because there was the case of white juror Huggins who said he had no knowledge of the Flowers case when in fact he was on a, a 2007 Wadir panel. And you say, oh well that doesn't matter that, that he lied because he didn't admit to lying. I think if someone lied and didn't admit to it, that would be a count against that person rather than in that person's favor.
8: And, and the trial court in this case made the distinction that the juror who was struck for lying on her questionnaire, admitted on the stand that she lied intentionally, which was not the case with Juror Huggins. Uh, And it would seem and appear that uh, he his participation in the panel, and he was dismissed long before he got anywhere near selection, uh, that he either forgot that or completely left his mind at the time he was initially questioned.
3: But let's go back to that. If we're looking at whether this is pretext. Mr. Evans was willing to give an excuse to this juror and keep him, despite the fact that there was direct evidence that he knew about the case. He was willing to accept the white lie, but not a truthful answer under oath in front of a judge. Doesn't that suggest pretext to you?
8: Again, Justice Sotomayor, I, the the issue, as it reads from the record, is that the juror who lied on her questionnaire expressly admitted that she lied for the sole purpose of getting off the jury.
3: Well, I I have to tell you, if that were the case, I I don't think one could take one juror and not push them on those questionnaires and come up to an intentional uh, understatement or overstatement.
8: Again, Your Honor, I — that was — and this is one of the issues with this case, is that each one of these strikes that we have, we don't have one single reason. We have you know, <laughs> All right, let's look at them. But you do have
9: history. Trial one, five black jurors possibles, uses peremptories, strikes all five. Trial two, five jack jurors possible. Uses all five, strikes all five blacks. Okay. Trial number three. There were 17 black possible. Uh, he uses only 15 this time. Why? Because he ran out of peremptories. So he only had 15. All right. Fourth trial. Uh, 16 black. He only struck 11. That's because he only had 11 peremptories, perhaps. All right. Uh, now we come to this trial with that background. Okay. And I don't think it's going to take much once you have that background. So now let's look at one black juror, one white one, potential. Okay, let's call them one and two. Both are women. Both are in their mid-40s. Both have some college education. Both strongly favor the death penalty. Now, the uh, potential black actually has a brother serving as a prison guard. Now, you would have thought that might have favored the prosecution in the prosecutor's mind. Okay, so that's one difference. I don't think that cuts in your favor. Then, Have they ever had anybody arrested, you know? No, neither has. And do they know people in the case? Yeah. They each know something over 30 people. Same, 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 same. Now, is there a connection with the Flowers family? Well, the black juror did, in fact, possibly work at some distance, we don't know quite what, with the father at Walmart, and the white one knew his father, mother, sister, cousin through her work as a bank teller. And then we get the last thing, which the Mississippi Supreme Court thought was so crucial, is that the, the, the black potential juror uh, was sued for overdue credit. And maybe she paid the garnishment of $30. I don't know. But uh, the white juror had been a friend of the victim's daughter in high school. Okay? There we have potential black, potential white. And we have the whole background. Now, looking at that, you tell me. What was the difference as to why he could strike, if that background, Carolyn Wright, the potential African-American juror who was number four, and Pamela Chesterton, the potential white American juror
8: who was number 17? What's the
9: difference? What's the difference given all those
8: similarities? Juror 14, Carolyn Wright, was struck because she was sued by Tardy. Yeah. Juror 14, Carolyn Wright, worked with the defendant's father, Archie, at Walmart. Yep. The distinction would be... That wait, wait, you didn't add that juror number 17 had
9: been a friend of the victim's daughter in high school and also knew Flower's father, mother, sister, and a cousin through her work as a teller at the bank.
8: Wright's relationship with the Father was a work relationship, an employee-employee relationship. Chestine was a bank teller, admitted that she just saw them coming in through the bank. So this was a uh, an employee and customer relationship, which the Mississippi Supreme Court made a distinction.
9: In other words, it was closer, the first relationship. Well, the, And the record, when I read that, will bear out that the first one really was a closer re- relation than seeing them every week or whatever as a bank teller. Well, the it, will, it, will it say that? I don't think it will because I think they said, well, how closely physically did you work uh, with uh, uh, the uh, father? And there was no answer to that question.
8: The, the record will bear out that the district attorney only struck those individuals that worked with members of his family. And that was consistent. Okay, uh, so that's the reason. The distinction is when I go back in the record, I have to say,
9: knowing Flowers' father, mother, sister, cousin through the work as a bank teller, is not a good reason for striking somebody. But working with Flower's father at some unknown distance at Walmart is. And that's the crucial difference I will find. There is a difference there, but is there anything else? Because after all, I have the history, plus plus now I've narrowed it down. That's why I asked. I've narrowed it down to that being
8: the difference. Again, Justice Breyer would also say that one of the differing things was that she was sued by Tardy. Yes, which was a, con- a theme, right. with a- at least. And one so I other. also
9: should look at that, and then decide whether that really is more significant than the fact that number seventeen was friends with the victim's daughter in high school. You know, sometimes you're friends with your high school, your high school pals. You don't forget. So, so I, those are the two things I should look at.
8: Is there anything else? I think that's enough, Your Honor. Uh, I mean, well, in, I do in, too. In many
7: of <laughs> I many respects, Mr. Mr. Davis, um, uh, Ms. Wright is a, is a perfect juror for a prosecutor, right? She is — she strongly favors the death penalty. Her uncle is a prison security guard. Uh, her relative is the victim of a violent crime. Uh, except for her race, you would think that this is a, a juror that a prosecutor would love when she walks on the door, isn't she?
8: Not if she works with the defendant's family, and not if she was sued by uh, the uh, workplace of one of the victims. And, and that's the dis- distinguishing factor here. Counsel, I don't I- want to imply, I'm sorry, that I,
9: I, you have directed me to the two relevant parts of the record. And before I make up my mind definitely, I will read those two relevant parts, both sides. Okay
0: again uh counsel again we, we're sort of conducting this as if it were one one case and, and in terms of a broader uh uh rule do, do you recognize or do we recognize in our precedent any restriction on the prior history that can be brought up with respect to a current current case
8: no your honor and and, and far be it for me to presume the the full basis for the grant but I certainly see that as one of the issues before the court is, as Your Honor asked, how far are we to go? And and and, how, and what does it matter? What, what part does that history play? But I, my point is, do you – is there anything
0: in our precedent that suggests that there ought to be a limitation on looking to the history of the
8: uh, prosecutor involved? There's no limitation uh, on the history. I think certainly the precedent says that you have to consider it. Uh, I'm not aware of any language in Batson and its progeny for this particular circumstance where we have six trials by the same district attorney. Uh, I'm not aware of any. This is a unique situation in that regard.
5: And and along those lines, um, Justice Breyers pointed out a a, a dichotomy that in other circumstances might be uh, explicable um, by an innocent reason. But if all of the history is relevant, um, as you acknowledged, uh, how, does that sh- what light does that shed on what otherwise might appear to be an innocent strike? And when when should what rule would you lay down? I know that's hard to do, but we're presumably taking cases to guide future disputes, not just resolve this one. How how would you how would you write that rule as to the relevance of the past information with, when, when we're looking
8: at the current trial? In responding to that, Your Honor, let me say that when we use the word history, we are limiting it to this case. This district attorney and his over 25 years of experience uh, having searched for additional cases and no case is cited by the petitioner outside of this case in regards to a Batson violation. So the history is limited here. The question then is what to do in a case like this. How much does the specter of those two prior violations come into play in the in the analysis in this? Uh, I think it certainly has to be looked at. I believe the trial judge Is it
3: just the specter of the two violations? Weren't there two cases that were overturned or in which prosecutorial misconduct, at least the first, was overturned on prosecutorial misconduct? They didn't even reach the Batson Challenge. Yes, Your Honor. But doesn't that tell you something about this man's passion for this case? I, I don't even need to call it anything else, but doesn't that tell you how you should be looking at this case? I, I can't speak to his passion for the case, Your Honor. Uh, I
8: can speak to his uh, pursuit of conviction in this in the sense of the six trials, um, In which there were — But he didn't —
3: I understand he didn't ask the Attorney General to step in, which he could have, to prosecute the case. But I understand he lobbied two legislators to try to change the venue legislatively. Is that correct?
8: That's my understanding, Your Honor. So
3: he could try the case?
8: Well, try the case outside of Montgomery County.
3: Instead of getting the attorney general to try the case,
8: and, and and I would again reiterate in his own county. Yes, your honor, and and we are strictly prohibited from interjecting ourselves in cases we tried, not in this case, but in another case, and our Supreme
6: Court said knew in, in that. Sorry, in Batson, we uh, held that a prosecutor cannot state uh, merely that he challenged jurors in the defendant's case uh, of the defendant's race on the assumption or his intuitive judgment that they would be partial to the defendant because of their shared race. That was really the critical sentence in Batson, and the dissent disagreed with that, Um, the critical change. You can't just assume that someone's going to be favorable to someone because they share the same race. And when you look at the 41 out of 42, how do you look at that and not come away with thinking what was going on there was what the dissent in Benson and said was permissible, but the majority said was not permissible, that there's a stereotype that you're just going to favor someone because they're of the same race as the defendant?
8: I respectfully, in this case, in no way agree that there was some Prior determination made by the district attorney that, that because of this person's race, they were not going to be favorable. Uh, again, this case has spans uh, some 23 years now in
7: this small community.
8: One of the inherent
7: problems. I, I, is I guess I don't understand how you can say this. in this case there were three adjudicated Batson violations. Two. Okay, two. Two. Uh, the
8: uh, flowers three and Flowers, too, both had adjudicated Batson issues, Uh, that the trial court was aware of that was evident. Uh, The same trial judge presided over the fifth trial, uh, and in this case, we had the same defense counsel. Counsel moved in motions that were offered in the fifth trial up to and including in Joint Appendix 42 Motion number 57, which was a motion to bar prosecution from exercising peremptory strikes at all, or at least from exercising them against non-white Venari members. Judge Loper adopted his prior rulings. His ruling on that motion uh, also included caution, caution to both parties that if there's any uh, objections or challenges based on demeanor or based on a juror's appearance, that if it wasn't in the record, he was not going to consider it. I'm
3: didn't sorry, counsel, did you just say that the same judge who tried the fifth trial also tried this six, the sixth trial? Yes, Your Honor. And wasn't he the judge that ordered Mr. Evans to prosecute the sole holdout juror in the fifth trial? There. And didn't Mr. Evans do that? There and the Attorney General take over the case and say there was no basis for that prosecution?
8: There were two jurors uh, that were bound over to the grand jury on the basis of perjury. One pleaded guilty to that, and the other was null prossed. Uh, again, and that was handled by the Attorney General's office, not my division, but another.
3: But I think the Attorney General nolle it because there was no basis for that prosecution. I don't
8: know
2: that there was not a basis, I just know that it was null-prost.
7: May, no, may that, I ask
3: you that
2: about- Can say in, in this case, because of the unusual and really disturbing history, this case just could not have been tried, uh, this sixth time by the same prosecutor? That, be, that you just cannot, in light of the history, you just can't untangle, uh, what happened before from Particular strikes in this case, and
8: again, Your Honor, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I was not involved in any consideration on that. Um, had I been, it, it, it might have been a suggestion of mine that that be the case, but that wasn't. And uh, however, the record in this case by no means uh, supports the conclusion that the Mississippi Supreme Court's decision ran afoul of Batson or its progeny. And, and if I may, I'd like to return to what I was saying about the trial judges. Uh, being aware of the history, specifically, Judge Loper said at the transcript at page 314, I know what Flowers 3 said. He then cautioned the state, I'm going to look very closely at this case. Again, the judge acknowledging that he would be diligent, making sure the same type of error did not occur again. Well,
7: would, well how closely did he look? I mean, let, let's talk just about the questioning in this case. Um, The numbers themselves are staggering, the number of questions that were asked to African-Americans versus whites. But more than the numbers, if you look at the the way what these questions were targeted to do, let's take, for example, the questions on the death penalty. Um, uh, This prosecutor would question a white person who said that he or she had reservations about the death penalty, and the questions are all designed to rehabilitate the person. You know, the prosecutor would say, well, if the law required you to do it, you could follow the law, couldn't you? And then the person would say yes. But if an African-American said that that he or she had qualms about the death penalty, the prosecutor would say the exact opposite. The prosecutor would say something like, well, it would be really hard for you to apply the death penalty then, wouldn't it? So in every case, this kind of disparate questioning uh uh you know, it it looks as though he's he's designing, he's trying to create a record for striking black jurors that will and and uh and for distinguishing black jurors from white jurors by means of his questioning, which is sort of um, uh you know completely opposite uh from the questioning that he gives to whites.
8: I think the questions that the district attorney asked were direct result of those responses these particular
7: jurors provided in General Vardar, and... Uh, well, I think what I'm saying is it's not. Two jurors, one white, one black, says, I have reservations about the death penalty. And he says to the white one, but you could follow the law. And he says to the black one, well, I don't know. I guess you can't follow the law.
8: Respectfully, Your Honor, I, I, that's not the case as I read the record. Uh, the uh, Each juror that indicated they were against the death penalty um, is certainly one that in a general context that a prosecutor would not want to be on the jury. And, of course, uh, we had in this case vacillation amongst these jurors. Uh, for example, Flancy Jones, who on her juror questionnaire said she was strongly against the death penalty and then during questioning said she could consider it, but then went on to admit that she lied on her juror questionnaire. Uh, so, the questions that the district attorney asked were to follow up on what was on the juror questionnaire with regard to their uh, statements therein regarding the death penalty. In this case, the record itself shows that the district attorney offered valid race-neutral reasons for each strike, each strike was considered by the trial court, who had made, aware, made the parties aware of that he was aware of the history of the case. Uh, and the record supports that all the jurors that were struck were struck because they were either sued by tardy furniture, they were either related to the defendant or friends with, or had worked with members of the defendant's family. And these are all valid race-neutral reasons
4: But there were no questions of white um, jurors who said they had a relationship with defense witnesses. There were no follow-up questions for them. They just said, yes, they knew defense witnesses.
8: The only, to my recollection, Justice Ginsburg is uh, Pamela chestine who indicated that she knew Flowers' family, but only because she was a bank teller and she'd seen them come in. Again, that was a general question. We
4: didn't, we don't know what the relationship of the others were because they weren't asked. They said they had a relationship with defense witnesses, but they weren't asked what is the relationship.
8: I, I'm sorry, misunderstood. Regarding the ones that said they knew these witnesses in the case, Your Honor, Yes, and, and the Mississippi Supreme Court noted that, that there were, and again, this is part and parcel of the issue with this unique case, is that, you know, 5,000 people in the town, everybody knows everybody, and everybody knew everything about the case. Uh, and the Mississippi Supreme Court noted that these witnesses on both sides knew numerous witnesses for both the prosecution and the defense. And that is, of course, but one part of the analysis. Um, you have to look at the reasons that the that were offered by the district attorney. And in this case they all support the strikes that well, were made.
6: Part of Batson was about confidence of the community and the fairness of the criminal justice system, right? Yes, sure, And uh that was against a backdrop of a lot of uh decades of all white juries convicting black defendants. Swain said, let's put a stop to that, but really didn't give the tools for eradicating discrimination. So he had another twenty one years of that. Until Batson, And then Batson said, uh, we're going to give you the tools to eradicate that so that the com- – not just for the fairness to the defendant and to the juror, but the community has confidence in the fairness of the system. And can you say, as you sit here today confidently, you have confidence in the, how this all transpired in this case? I have confidence in this
8: record, Justice Kavanaugh. I have confidence in the strikes that this district attorney made uh, based on the four corners of this record. Uh, I have confidence that if reviewed with an eye towards what actually transpired, it supports the Mississippi Supreme Court's decision in this case. That I have confidence in. Mm
6: -hmm. Thank you.
3: In how this case was prosecuted.
8: Based on this record, yes, Your Honor, I do.
3: You know, I, one of the first things I did when I found this case was to try to do some research, because at least my former state prosecutor's office would have substituted attorneys long before the FISC-6 trial. Um, regrettably, I don't wasn't able to find any formalized guidance on that. But it does seem odd to me that, any prosecutor would continue to try a case with this history.
8: And again, I would agree completely, Justice Sotomayor, that we have an unusual circumstance, an unusual case with these six trials having been uh, all tried by the same prosecutor. But I would resubmit again that the decision of the Mississippi Supreme Court in this instance was not violative of Batson and its progeny. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice.
0: Thank you, counsel. Uh, You have four minutes remaining. Ms. Johnson?
1: Unless this Court has further questions, I will waive rebuttal.
6: Uh, Ms. Johnson, did you — would you kind enough tell me whether or not you exercised any peremptories?
1: I was not the trial lawyer. Well,
6: did your — were any peremptories exercised by the defendant? They were. And what was the race of the jurors struck there?
1: She only exercised peremptories against white jurors. But I would add that the mo- her motivation is not the question here. The question is the motivation of Doug Evans.
3: She didn't have any black jurors to exercise peremptories against, except the first except one? Except the first one. But so did the prosecutor, accept that one? Correct. After that, every black juror that was available on the panel was struck?
1: Yes, he struck one. He seated one African-American juror and, at the very end, uh, struck one white juror. When all of the evidence in this case is considered, just as in Foster versus Chapman, the conclusion that race was a substantial part of Evans' motivation is inescapable, and the Mississippi Supreme Court's conclusion to the contrary is clearly erroneous. Thank
0: you. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.